Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing an issue that is well known to those involved in politics and to their donors, but perhaps not as well known to the average American voter. So we're going to try to shed some light on the issue of donor disclosure. And in order to do that, uh, we have a very special guest today, Jennifer Braceras. She is the director of Independent Women's Law Center, which is a project of the Independent Women's Forum, which we know very well here in the D.C. area. It's very reputable and interesting interesting group. Uh, She is also a former member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and she recently wrote a very sharp op-ed on the subject of donor disclosure recently. Um, I saw it at the Independent Women's Forum website, uh, but I think it was also in USA Today. Um, So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. Um, How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Uh, The the op-ed that you wrote, I didn't name it, well, let me go ahead and give the title of it so anybody that's interested can go find it. It's the, the headline is Freedom of Association is Under Attack. Will the Supreme Court Protect It? Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the op-ed. But first, I would like for you to tell me a little bit about yourself, what the uh, Independent Women's Law Center is, what the Independent Women's Forum is, and what you do there. Sure. Well, the Independent Women's Forum is a group that was founded in the 90s, actually, uh, by women uh, to promote education and research on, you know, public policy issues um, affecting women and, and all Americans, really. It's a conservative, libertarian women's group. Um, and what makes it unique uh, in the political space is that it's never taken a position on abortion or some of the other hot button social issues. So, you know, we sort of stake out ground that's, um, I won't say in between, but different, different space than say concerned women for America and Eagle forum on the one hand, or the national organization of women, uh, and the other, you know, left-wing feminist groups on the other side. Um, we've, focus primarily on uh, economic and, um, you know, social social issues that aren't sort of linked with the more religious issues. Um, we certainly have members who, for example, are pro-life, but we also have members and staff people who are pro-choice. So we just remain neutral uh, on that issue, which I think gives us, uh, you know, a different voice and a way to reach a different segment of the electorate um, than than some other groups on the right. So the the Independent Women's Law Center, as you noted, is a project of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, And we formed two years ago, but really the genesis of the idea goes back to the 90s when the IWF was formed because the IWF actually was created by a group of women who originally had formed as women for Clarence Thomas. Um, They were mostly professional women who had worked with or for Justice Thomas at the EEOC or the Department of Education. And they came out to support his nomination for the Supreme Court and realized during the whole Anita Hill hearings that there were all these so-called women's groups that claimed to speak for everybody Um, and there were, you know, there wasn't a strong voice on the other side of women who could defend Justice Thomas. Um, and so that, 
that group of women ended up forming IWF. And it was always sort of the hope or goal of Ricky Silverman, one of the founders, that we would have a legal arm one day and that we would be involved uh, routinely, not only in uh, judicial nomination battles, but court battles and other um, other legal debates. Okay. Well, you're certainly, uh, with this op-ed, involved in a legal debate <laughs> uh, <laughs> d- discussing this issue of donor disclosure. And, um, y- y- you know, there it grew... Okay, so we'll just start in with the op-ed. The, the cases that are going before the Supreme Court, which they've already agreed, I think they agreed in January to hear... Um, they have they mm. deal with this issue of donor disclosure and donor privacy. So, can you give me a little bit of background on? I think there are two cases. Um, what what those cases are, where they came from, and why donor disclosure and donor privacy first, how it relates to the First Amendment right of freedom of association, mm-hmm. and second, why it's important. Why do we care? Well. Let's start with the, with the issue and why uh, why we care and why it relates to the First Amendment. Um, if you have a First Amendment right to speak out about things, that right doesn't carry a whole lot of weight if you can't sort of put your money where your mouth is and support the causes that you believe in. Um, this was sort of the great insight of one of my mentors, Judge Ralph Winter, for whom I clerked and who recently passed away. Um, he argued the Buckley versus Vallejo case uh, before the Supreme Court. And, you know, his great insight was that if you can't, uh, as I said, you know, sort of support your beliefs through money, um, what good are they? And this is sort of a corollary of that because. People want to be able to support causes uh, in this country without being socially ostracized for doing so. And if you can't speak out about something or donate to a cause without the mob coming for you, so to speak, on Twitter or elsewhere, um, you're not going to be likely to support, you know, certain causes, right? And so this is true of any controversial cause, whether it's on the left or the right. Um, you know, people are going to be afraid to to be involved, to be, you know, be involved in civic discourse and to participate uh, at the levels that you would want people in a free society to participate if they fear that, you know, people are going to be protesting outside their house or, or you know, making fun of them on Twitter or revealing personal information about them on the internet. Um, So the lawsuit stems, um, there's two cases. They both stem from California, although California is not the only state to do this. Um, But the state of California has a policy of requiring charities um, to essentially hand over their donor lists to the attorney general. Um, and this applies to any charity that uh, has any link to the state, whether or not the, you know, even if all the donors aren't from California or the charity isn't based in California, um, if you have some activity in California and you're a charitable organization, you have to <clears throat> hand over um, your, they're basically your federal IRS forms and um, and you have to give them to the state attorney general. Now, 
the forms that are submitted to the IRS are confidential. The IRS can't leak them without criminal penalty. Um, but now, the, you know, the state attorney general is a- asking for these things. Well, why are they asking for these things? They say that it's to prevent fraud, that they need it, this bulk disclosure, um, you know, for criminal investigations or, you know, civil fraud investigations, which is absurd because if they are really investigating fraud, they have subpoena power to go and and ask specific charities for any records um, that they are, you know, that are relevant to their investigations. So the bulk disclosure is really unnecessary in my view. Um, a lot of people believe that that the states that are passing these laws, that these are politically motivated laws um, so that politicians can create what are essentially informal enemies lists. Um, sort of the less nefarious uh, analysis of it is, well, okay, you know, they're not trying to do this to create enemies lists. They they just want the information because that's what government does. It collects information. But nevertheless, uh, due to incompetence or due to hacking or leaking by individuals, the information can still get out into the public domain and cause a lot of harm, even if the intent of the law uh, you know, isn't as nefarious as some people might think. It still has very dangerous uh, repercussions for for the donors and for the charities themselves, because then the charities, you know, have a harder time raising money if people are afraid to give. So, um, in this particular case, there were two five hundred one c three organizations that refused to comply, and they took the California Attorney General, who was Kamala Harris at the time, uh, to court. And the district court, after a trial, found. That in fact, the California Attorney General's office had not kept this material private, that it had been, uh, much of it had been leaked and incompetently dealt with and gotten into the public domain, uh, that these two particular groups, uh, one's Americans, Americans for Prosperity and the other is the, the Thomas More uh, Foundation, I believe, um, but that these two groups had been harmed because donors um, were unlikely to give, having been you know, mistreated in the past when their donations became public. So the court, the lower court, found for the charitable groups, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the district court's finding, and now it is before the United States Supreme Court, uh, which will have the final set. Okay. And I know that the issue of donor, well, first of all, it sounds like those two 501c3 organizations were right (laughs) to file their suit because it turns out there was some, as you mentioned, some um, mishandling of their information. It did get leaked out. Yes, that's right. The the district court found, um, and I'm quoting, that the California AG's office systematically failed to maintain the confidentiality of the donor information, um, and that past contributors to the organizations had suffered public threats, harassment, intimidation, and retaliation on account of their association with the groups. 
Okay, and final question on uh, on these two cases and, you know, relative to them appearing before the Supreme Court before we move on to the next question. Uh, what's your sense? Do you think that the current makeup of the court is likely to um, rule in favor? I mean, I don't want you to predict if you don't want to, but do you think they have a good chance of um, of getting a fair, a fair sort of analysis from this court? It's always hard to read the tea leaves on these things. Um you know, lots of times when the court agrees to hear a case, it's to resolve a split in the circuits, um, you know, on an issue. And so they, you know, they want consistency in the nation and, and the appellate courts are split. So they take the case. Um, in this case, I actually don't know if there's a split in the circuit. I don't think there is. And if that if I'm right about that, that leads me to believe that they've taken the case because they think there's a problem with the appellate court ruling below. Um, They did ask the Solicitor General's office to weigh in on whether they should take the case. And the Solicitor General um, very strongly said that they should take the case because of the very real threat to the First Amendment. Um, I, I do think the court is going to rule in favor of the charitable organizations. And I frankly hope that it will be by a wide margin. I think, you know, I don't think this is an issue that should necessarily divide jurisprudential uh, conservatives and and liberals, so to speak, on the court. Um, so my guess is you'll you'll see a seven to two ruling, and you know, I, I would hope to see a nine zero ruling, frankly, on something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since, and this is, you know, sort of the third question I had, this is this is really a bipartisan issue. I mean, there there are concerns on both sides of the political aisle about donor disclosure. And in fact, the you know, one of the landmark cases uh, related to this issue was the NAACP versus Alabama, I believe. Can you yeah. give me a little background on that and tell us like how this issue grew out of that lawsuit? Sure. Yeah. NC, uh, the NCAA, sorry, NAACP versus Alabama um, is a 1958 case, uh, which was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court. And in that case, the court held that the state of Alabama could not compel the NAACP to hand over their membership lists. So it's a little different. It involved the membership and not donations. Um, but the principle, in my view, is the same. Um, The reason the court said that the state couldn't force them to hand over their memberships, their membership list is because that would subject members of the organization to, you know, economic reprisal, loss of employment, physical coercion, and all sorts of other hostility. Because, you know, in 1958 in Alabama, being in favor of civil rights was not necessarily a popular thing. Um, that's that's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah. So so you know contributing contributing to that cause uh, in some communities was risky. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will argue, well, that's different uh, for two reasons. That case is different for two reasons. One, um, that took place in the context of white supremacy, and that's not what we're dealing with today. We're not dealing with white supremacist violence. We're dealing with you know just people not being nice on Twitter. Um, We're not dealing with people burning crosses on your lawn. 
that's one way that that people try to distinguish the case. The other way is what I alluded to before, is they say, well, this doesn't deal with money. And, you know, in the era of, of corruption in politics, we need to be able to trace the money. Um, this isn't just about what you agree with or what groups you belong to, but who's who's funding things. Um, I don't think those distinctions hold legal weight, frankly. Um, you know, in fact, the NAACP filed a brief in the Ninth Circuit in support of the two 501c3s, both of which are conservative libertarian groups. But the NAACP came in on their side and said, look, this is essentially the same thing. Um, you know, whether you're a member of the NAACP or you're donating to the NAACP, you should be allowed to do that privately if you so choose. Um, and, you know, the argument that, that this isn't about white supremacist violence, it's, you know, it's about being mean on Twitter. Well, it's just a question of degree, really. Um, and, and even in the 1958 case, the court didn't limit its holding to the fact that people were being physically threatened. They talked about losing their jobs or, or being, you know, just ostracized in other ways. Um, so I don't think those distinctions uh, will carry the day for those who want to force uh, charities to disclose their donors, but but those are the arguments that are being made. You know, in some ways, it's actually uh, it's actually good to hear that some of these concerns about you know being targeted and people losing their jobs and things like that for their political affiliations and opinions that this isn't new because I think we have a tendency now to watch what's going on with you know so called cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and think that it's the scariest thing in the world because it's brand new, but it's actually not. This is something we've battled before. Well, it's not new, but the ability to find out information about people um, is greater with technology, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you were a member of the NAACP in the 1950s or gave them money, um, it would be very difficult for, you know, white supremacists to find that out unless the state required that the NAACP hand over that information and then leaked it, right? Nowadays, you know, people can hack into things. People can, you know, there are all sorts of ways on the computers, uh, you know, that people can find out what your beliefs are and try to punish you for them. So, and also once they have the information, you know, technology gives people um, a faster means of, of communicating that information and spreading information about you. So um, it's it's a problem that we've had for a long time, but I think that the stakes are higher now because of technology. Okay, that's fair. Um, there's currently a piece of legislation um, that is very much supported by the progressive left called the For the People Act or HR1. And it's it's generally speaking sort of an election reform piece of legislation, but included in it is a 
sort of mandate that I think the threshold is $10,000, that donors that give 10000 or more would be disclosed. Um, again, I think that there's some, currently what I'm hearing is that this is not well loved on either side of the aisle. Um, do you think these two uh, SCOTUS cases might inform uh, you know, the, the, the taste for that kind of provision in that legislation? Well, I would hope so. I mean, the cases before the Supreme Court deal with donations to 501c3 charities and not political campaigns mm-hmm. per se. Um, but the same principles are at stake. And, you know, this is something that politicians love to talk about, right? They love to talk about dark money and exposing it and corruption. But when you take it out of, you know, when you take it away from politicians, charitable groups and people on both sides of the political aisle understand that this is really about freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And they understand that, you know, if you look back over history, all of the causes which we today take for granted as being inevitable, right? The American Revolution, the abolitionist movement, um, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, those were all controversial causes in their day. And luckily, um, people were allowed to support them anonymously, right? People, you had people writing under pseudonyms uh, in the American Revolution, you know, even promoting the Constitution under Publius, right? The Federalist Papers. People, people expressed their ideas anonymously um, in many of these cases, and people donated anonymously to many of these causes. And aren't we glad, looking back, that they had the power, they had the ability to do that? Uh, I certainly am. (laughs) Um, So this has been a great and fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate you coming on as an expert and sort of putting it in terms I think that people can can understand. Sometimes these things can get very esoteric. The language is, you know, legalese or politicalese or however you want to call it. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate you coming on and and, uh, helping kind of demystify it. Uh, for people. Um, can you happy to us, do so? Thank you so much. Can you um, tell us where we can find more of your work? Sure. Um, we, you know, the Independent Women's Law Center, as you said, is a project of the Independent Women's Forum. So all of our work can be found at IWF.org. Um, and there's a, a tab for law where you can click and look at more of our stuff. Um, so hopefully people will go and check it out. Yeah, and you should, people listening. Um, And so that's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you already have subscribed, thank you very much. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you again next week. And Jennifer, thank you again for coming on. No problem. Great to talk to you. You as well. Take care. Bye-bye.